By the time Clay's business in Europe was done, he was so ready to leave that he scrambled as fast as he could to Liverpool to catch the first ship that he could back to the States. He was in such a hurry that he left behind his fellow commissioner, Albert Gallatin, who, as you'll recall, was a straggler in getting to Ghent in the first place. Clay reportedly told Madison's stepson, who had served as a private secretary during the negotiations, that if he wanted to accompany him across the Atlantic, quote, Be you ready. I wait for no man. Welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I am, as always, your humble host, Jerry Landry. As we continue the story of Henry Clay's life and lengthy career, in this episode we'll see his impetuousness develop into an Achilles heel. However, before we get to that, let's back up for a moment. Though the negotiations at Ghent were over and the papers signed, Clay still had some work to do in Europe. The administration had asked Clay, Gallatin, and John Quincy Adams to proceed to London in order to negotiate a commercial treaty with their now reconciled ally. First, though, Clay intended to take advantage of the opportunity of being in Europe and went first to Paris. While there, news arrived of General Andrew Jackson's victory at the Battle of New Orleans. Reportedly on hearing the news, Clay exclaimed that, quote, Now I can go to England without mortification, as the United States had proven itself an equal to the British on the battlefield. Clay would be the first to arrive in London on March 22nd, but as with anything Clay, his departure from Paris was fraught with excitement as, around the same time Clay was bound for Britain, Napoleon was coming back into town. Clay exclaimed of Napoleon's return to power in a letter upon his arrival in London, quote, Wonderful age, wonderful man, wonderful nation. Napoleon's return, as we now know, was not to last long, as his position was severely weakened with most of his support only coming from the veterans of his grand army. The former speaker could only watch the developments play out on the continent while waiting for his colleagues to arrive. Naturally, Gallatin took his time because, apparently, he always liked to make an entrance by coming in late to the party. Adams, meanwhile, was forced to remain in Paris for longer than expected as he waited for his commission to assume his post as U.S. Minister to Great Britain to arrive. Gallatin actually beat Adams across the channel, so he and Clay began having informal discussions with the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Castlereagh. Given the monkey wrench that Napoleon's return had thrown in the Allies' plan for peace, it is understandable that Castlereagh wanted to establish normal commercial relations with the United States as soon as possible. Thus, Castlereagh asked Clay and Gallatin to meet with two of the British commissioners who had been at Ghent, as well as the vice president of the British Board of Trade, to talk about terms. The only problem was that neither Clay nor Gallatin was fully empowered by their government to act without Adams, and even the British diplomats had no official status. Thus, after an initial discussion, the British went silent, and after three weeks of no further progress, Clay and Gallatin decided that it was time for them to head home. However, when they announced their intentions to the British, their counterparts jumped into action, and Clay decided to postpone his departure. By this time, Adams arrived, having finally received his commission. In the meantime, while they were cooling their heels, Gallatin had prepared a draft treaty based on previous discussions and the administration's foreign policy. Around the same time of Adams' arrival, however, the British came back with their own draft treaty, which included certain non-starters as allowing the British to directly trade with Native Americans on U.S. soil. At this point, over a year after setting sail for Europe and having his focus be completely on diplomacy with the British, Clay was growing weary of negotiation and indeed called for the talks to be called off. 
However, his colleagues convinced him to stay at the table, and the back and forth continued until finally, on May 31st, the American and British commissioners had drafted a document that, while leaving certain key issues such as impressment, colonial trade restrictions, and trade with Canada and the West Indies open, did abolish discriminating duties between the two nations, established a mutual most favored nation status, and admitted U.S. merchants to trade in British India. Not only would this serve as a building block on which the special relationship as we now know it today between the U.S. and Great Britain was built upon, this negotiation became the model for talks with other nations. Yes, yes, Mr. Clay, I see you chomping at the bit there. This is all well and good, but Clay's ready to get home. The signing ceremony was on July 3rd, and by the 4th, Clay was on his way to Liverpool, which is where we came in. When he returned to the U.S., Clay was hailed as a diplomatic hero, a statesman. One toast given to him was, quote, Henry Clay, the orator, the statesman, and the patriot. What was next for this still young man? Well, Madison offered him the post of U.S. Minister to Russia, which Clay's colleague from Ghent, James A. Bayard, had been slotted to fill, but Bayard had died before he had a chance to do much of anything in terms of Russian diplomacy. Clay promptly told Madison, thanks, but no thanks. For, as he wrote around the same time, quote, I am sick of Europe. No, Clay had other plans. In the fall of 1815, he was re-elected to the House of Representatives, and in December, he took up the Speaker's chair that Langdon Cheeves of South Carolina had been keeping warm in his absence. However, the Washington, D.C. that Clay returned to was a much-changed city. British forces had landed and marched into the city, forcing the government to flee to the countryside. Though they didn't occupy the city for long, on their way out, the British set fire to some of the key buildings. The President's house was a burnt shell, and the Capitol building, though difficult to set aflame, was ultimately burned as well. However, the business of government had to continue, so Madison had moved into the Octagon House, while Congress reconvened in a newly constructed brick hall that ultimately became the site of today's Supreme Court building. This building, dubbed the Old Brick Capitol, would be used by Congress until 1825. The first problem facing this new Congress was one of economy. One of the key weaknesses that the U.S. had faced in the recent war was how to pay for it. The first bank of the United States had been allowed to expire at the end of its charter in 1811, notably at the objection of Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, who had been the leading voice of the Jeffersonian fiscal plan. And thus, the government did not have the bank as a tool to craft and carry out a responsible fiscal policy when the war came. Congress had attempted to establish a second bank in 1814, but Madison had vetoed the bill. When Clay returned to the Speaker's dais in December 1815, however, the situation was dire enough that even Madison, in his annual message to Congress, was calling for a new bank. This new bank, though it would come to play a key role in the story of the Jackson era to come, was only one part of a much larger discussion. The war had changed the United States. Having been cut off from international trade, new industries had by necessity developed in the U.S. Factories were popping up. Domestic trade was increasing. The Industrial Revolution was taking hold and reshaping the American economy. The question that Clay and other leaders in Washington started to ask themselves was how they could use the government to support these efforts. Representative John C. Calhoun delivered a speech in the House in which he asserted that, quote, England is the most formidable power in the world. We, on the other hand, are the most growing nation on earth. 
Will Great Britain permit us to go on in an uninterrupted march to the height of national greatness and prosperity? I fear not. You will have to encounter British jealousy and hostility in every shape to check your growth and prosperity. To be a prosperous nation, the government would have to rethink its role. Henry Clay took to the floor of the House on January 16, 1816, and shared his thoughts on this and how it related to his recent experiences. Quote, I was in the neighborhood of the Battle of Waterloo, and some lessons I did derive from it. But they were lessons which satisfied me that national independence was only to be maintained by national resistance against foreign encroachments. By cherishing the interest of the people and giving to the whole physical power of the country an interest in the preservation of the nation, we had been insulted and outraged and spoliated upon by almost all Europe, by Great Britain, by France, Spain, Denmark, Naples, and to cap the climax by the contemptible power of Algiers. We had submitted too long and too much. We had become the scorn of foreign powers and the contempt of our own citizens. No more, said Clay. He and other former war hawks now rallied together to develop a new national system. The government must work to make internal improvements by constructing roads and canals, quote, to facilitate intercourse between all parts of the country and to bind and connect us together. The government had to use tariffs to protect its nascent manufacturing industries. Along with these various improvements at time of peace, the government must always be mindful of and prepared for the possibility of war. Thus, the army and the navy needed to be expanded. Military roads had to be constructed. A system of taxation had to be developed that didn't depend on trade, that might be disrupted at wartime, and would keep the government supplied with funds to properly support the military. What Clay and his allies were talking about now was a radical rethink from previous Jeffersonian Republican policy. Indeed, it sounded more like the old Federalist. The war had changed much, and even Madison's administration cooperated with these efforts. The first success came with the passage of the Tariff of 1816, the first protective tariff in the nation's history. While the U.S. had implemented tariffs before on imported goods, this was the first one whose intention was not to generate government revenue, but rather to protect certain American industries from having to compete with foreign manufacturers. The agenda that spring also included the charter of a new Bank of the United States. Given previous Republican opposition to the National Bank, including opposition from the gentleman from Kentucky, Mr. Clay. This was a bit of a harder sell, but Clay took to the floor of the House to support it, and it was passed and signed into existence by Madison. As the session wound on, one more bill came before Congress. After Representative Richard M. Johnson had complained that congressional sessions dragged on as its members wished to get more pay as they were paid $6 per day, a bill was put up to change congressional pay to $1,500 a year. Clay, who would be paid twice that amount as Speaker, supported the measure. Of course he did. This would prove to be the first political misstep in Clay's career, as he would find out when he went back home to Kentucky and faced a public angry about the congressional salary grab as it was being derided. The timing couldn't have been worse, as 1816 was an election year which meant that Clay and the rest of the U.S. representatives were all up for re-election. Some, after going home to find similar complaints about the compensation bill, decided to resign or not run for re-election rather than fight. 
Clay, however, was a fighter. He went out on the stump and managed to convince the voters to send him back to Washington with a promise to push through a bill to change congressional pay back to a per-day rate. However, this election would prove to be the closest margin that Clay would ever face during his time in the House. He won by only a few hundred votes. True to his word, Congress in 1817 repealed the Compensation Act and raised the per diem rate for congressional pay from 6 to $8. Come on, you didn't think Congress wasn't going to try for a salary hike one way or another, did you? Things haven't changed that much. Though some Republican members of Congress were turned out of their seats in the 1816 elections over the compensation bill issue, the party had no problems in installing its nominee, James Monroe, as the fifth president of the United States, with Monroe receiving an overwhelming 183 electoral votes to Federalist candidate Rufus King's 34 votes. This election would prove to be the last gasp of the Federalist Party on the national scale. Indeed, in 1820, no one would challenge Monroe for the presidency. This didn't mean that factionalism in the United States was at an end, though. In some ways, it was just getting started. And true to form, Henry Clay would place himself in the middle of it. Monroe may have been president, but Clay was determined to run the show. The day after Monroe sent his first annual message to Congress in December 1817, Clay took to the floor of the House to discuss U.S. policy towards Latin America. Independence movements had begun in the various Spanish colonies in Central and South America, but James Madison during his presidency had been reluctant to lend American support, either formally or informally, for fear of disrupting relations with Spain. Likewise, Monroe had expressed in his annual message his intentions to continue Madison's policy of, quote, impartial neutrality. That may be fine for some men, but not Henry Clay. Clay reminded his fellow representatives that the United States had at one time been a collection of colonies in rebellion against a European power, and that an established power, France, had come to its aid when it was needed. Why should the U.S. not step in to help patriots who now found themselves in a similar situation? With this focus on foreign relations, the new Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, was often the target of Clay's sharp tongue. The Speaker would also find himself at odds with the administration over the issue of internal improvements. Monroe felt that a constitutional amendment was needed to give the government authority to push forward with public works projects, while Clay argued that the government already had the authority under its existing powers. Clay would deliver a speech on March 7, 1818, in which he would outline his thoughts on the government's authority to make internal improvements before deviating into an attack on Monroe as naive in thinking that he was presiding over a nation that was of the same mind. Clay drew a line in the sand and declared that, quote, I am no groveling sycophant, no mean parasite, no base supplicant at the foot of authority. I respect the coordinate branches of government, but will exercise my own rights with the freedom which belongs to an American citizen without fear of the consequences. What was Clay's aim here? Some thought that he was sore over the State Department being given to Adams and that he was trying to force him out. Certainly, Adams thought that to be the case, writing that, quote, Clay expected himself to have been Secretary of State and he and all his creatures were disappointed in my appointment. He is therefore coming out as the head of a new opposition in Congress to Mr. Monroe's administration, and he makes no scruples in giving the tone to all his party in running me down. I have to wonder, though, whether that was truly his aim. 
The system as it was then thought of was that the Secretary of State was likely to assume the presidency. Indeed, now three presidents in a row had previously served in that office. With JQA in the post, should he become president after two terms of Monroe, it was not likely, given their previous animosity, that he would name Clay as his Secretary of State. Thus, it wouldn't be until 1833 at the earliest, should Adams serve two terms, that Clay could just get to the State Department. Henry Clay was many things, but patient wasn't one of them. No, if he was to get to the top office, he'd have to shake things up. That's my two cents guesstimate, at least. Take it with as many grains of salt as you'd like, but Clay was clearly setting himself up as the opposition to the Monroe administration. His next move would be one that would have far-reaching consequences for the Kentuckian long into the future. General Andrew Jackson, also known as the hero of the Battle of New Orleans, had gotten himself and the nation into a bit of a diplomatic kerfuffle by taking his forces into Florida, then a possession of the Spanish government, and thus foreign soil. On the pretense of pursuing Seminole raiders who had been crossing the border to attack settlers in Georgia, but in the process, he claimed Florida for the U.S. and executed two British subjects who had been found guilty of giving aid to the Seminole raiders by a military court of shaky legal jurisdiction. You may recall that we discussed this back in episode 21 as Harrison was in Congress at the time of this debate. An investigation was conducted and on January 12th, the House Committee on Military Affairs presented a report that condemned Jackson for the execution of the British citizens. Jackson, on January 31st, was writing to his nephew, blaming Clay and Secretary of the Treasury William H. Crawford, another man known to be ambitious for the presidency, for these, quote, hellish machinations against him. The debate over whether to censure Jackson raged in Washington in late January and early February. Jackson arrived on the scene on January 23rd to direct efforts for his defense, but he was three days too late for Clay's blistering attack against him. Clay, for two hours, attacked Jackson on January 20th for invading foreign soil, for violating the Treaty of Ghent, for negotiating the Treaty of Fort Jackson with, quote, a dictatorial spirit, for doing what even his supporters pronounced was, quote, a wrong mode of doing a right thing, in the execution of the British citizens, for trying to forcefully convert the native peoples in the territory to Christianity, so on and so forth. Clay claimed to have the, quote, most profound respect for Jackson, and that he believed, quote, Jackson's intentions pure and patriotic. But still, the attack went on for two hours. He finally concluded that his fellow representatives, quote, may bear down all opposition, even vote the general the public thinks. They may carry him triumphantly through this house. But if they do, in my humble judgment, it will be a triumph of the principles of insubordination, a triumph of the military over the civil authority, a triumph over the powers of this house, a triumph over the constitution of the land. And I pray most devoutly to heaven that it may not prove, in its ultimate effects and consequences, a triumph over the liberties of the people. Clay won both exhilarated applause and an eternal enemy with that speech. Jackson wrote to a friend of, quote, the hypocrisy and baseness of Clay in pretending friendship to me and endeavoring to crush the executive through me, make me despise the villain. 
Clay's antics and railings against the administration and its representatives got attention, but ultimately, it got him nowhere. The resolutions against Jackson were voted down on February 8th. The Monroe administration would not be forced into recognizing the republics of Latin America. He would start to get a reputation of, quote, querulous opposition and advocacy of impractical proposals. Yet, he continued. Next time, we will actually get past 1824, a goal that I've now failed to meet for two episodes. Seriously, I have no idea how long this Clay series is going, but I hope you're enjoying. In an episode I'd like to call, The Compromiser is Compromised. Until then, please feel free to send any questions, comments, or complaints to Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Podcast. again, all one word, are on Twitter at Harrison Podcast. You know the drill. As always, special thanks go to the audio editor of the Harrison Podcast and Clay fanatic, Andrew Foncook, who has been taking special pleasure at working on this series of episodes. He is available for non-Clay projects, though, so if you need his services for your next audio project, drop him a line via email, Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. Source information and supplementary material can be found at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, and past episodes can be listened to on there as well as on iTunes or Stitcher if you're not listening from there already. Thank you so much for listening, dear friends, and until next time, take care.